Two and a Half Admins, episode 15. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, do you want to plug your History of FreeBSD Part 2 article, Alan? Yeah, so over on my company's website, we have uh, the next part of our History of FreeBSD series. Uh, And this one's really good about the early days before FreeBSD, when it was just BSD, and the AT&T lawsuit. And there's lots of great history in there, and there's uh, links to a lot more of the old nostalgia stuff. It's very interesting. And get in contact if you want to advertise on the show. If you work for a company that's looking to get the word out there to a technical audience, then get in touch, show at 2.5admins.com. So let's start with some news then. And Cloudflare in the last couple of weeks announced a couple of things. Cloudflare 1 and their browser isolation beta. Now, Cloudflare 1, I read this at length and it took me a while to even understand what it was about. But in the end, it seemed to be some sort of single sign-on based service. Yeah, that was the impression I got too. Once you wade through five pages of marketing fluff, it looks like they're basically saying it's multiple single sign-on backends. They're saying they support like lots of them at once. So you can tie your Okta or your you know Google or your whatever else single sign-on authentication to, it looks like they're saying network level authentication, like basically to the firewall. So your, your firewall uh, then knows whether or not you've successfully signed on via Okta or whatever and determines whether or not you're allowed to get a packet to your target. It's a bit then. It looks like they also have a bit of a bigger version of a VPN. So connecting your data center to the Cloudflare Edge via the cloud network interconnect and then connecting your office to it via like a dedicated IP transit link and then their kind of VPN thing called Warp for roaming users and then putting that all into their smart routing platform that would then use uh, the single sign-on stuff to decide what you're allowed to do. And it talks about like inbound filtering and DDoS protection. It's like, well, if everything on the right side of your chart here is my data center, my office, and my users, where's the DDoS getting on the, that side of the network? I think there are also angry marketing emails coming to you right now, Alan, for daring to call one of their products a VPN, that antiquated word for antiquated terrible things that Cloudflare One replaces. But it provides the secure web gateway and allows zero trust rules. Because <laughs> the other thing that it uh, adds in addition to the single sign-on is this... Yeah, device integrity stuff. So CrowdStrike, Sentinel-1, or VMware Carbon Black, or whatever, that's some cruft that runs on your laptop that claims that your laptop's not compromised. And if it doesn't claim that, then you can't get on the VPN. Yeah, I really hated that part, um, saying that they they tied it in with those integrity verification systems, because the first thing that brought to my mind was that horrible, like, IBM trustier endpoint crap that banks, you know, want people to install and the only effect that Trustier Endpoint actually has, as far as I've been able to tell in 10 years of dealing with it, is it breaks the internet routinely. Beyond that, doesn't really seem to accomplish anything. I was reading through this, and I was reminded of the article that you wrote that we talked about last time, Jim. This seems to be like an almost productized, simple way to solve the problems that we were talking about of everyone being remote. A bit. Like the idea of if you connect your data center and your office and your remote users all to it, then... It gives you that kind of a, a network where you can access everything. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem of moving data across. It's still not going to be that fast. But like Jim was saying, you know, using RDP to get from your remote machine to 
uh, either a machine in the data center in the office that has <laughs> magic transit to the Cloudflare one yeah, and so on. But really, that just seems to be making a Cloudflare-only version of the internet. It's really annoying trying to dig through all the marketing fluff and figure out what does this actually mean and what does this actually do. But I think there there is one facet of it that's kind of important to talk about. When they talk about how they're leveraging these single sign-on services like, you know, Okta and what have you, and and tying that to IP-based, you know, access rules, what that really comes down to is like usually you have things behind a VPN because basically you don't trust the actual authentication systems they already have, right? Like you don't put RDP directly on the internet if you're not, you know, a, a little functionally challenged because you don't trust the authentication interface to get hammered on by random people. Um, if you wrap that behind a VPN, then now you've said, well, now people have to hammer on my VPN, which I trust a lot more than I trust that RDP authentication. So basically, a lot of what Cloudflare is, you know, potentially accomplishing here is they're saying, hey, you can still run these services that you don't actually trust people to access. And although it's not a traditional VPN, now we have different authentication to allow people to get to this other authentication route. But you're still basically saying, I'm going to wrap all the crap that I don't really trust enough to, you know, expose to the internet behind some other level of authentication that I think is maybe a little bit better tested, better trusted, uh, you know, better federated than mine and uh, hope for the best. Throughout this whole conversation, there's been this unspoken subtext that you don't like Cloudflare, both of you. And for me, there's something about Cloudflare that rubs me the wrong way, and I can't put my finger on what it is. Is that fair to say that you two are not huge fans of Cloudflare generally? In this context, I wouldn't agree with that. Um, there are things that I dislike about Cloudflare, like how incredibly slow they are to do anything about, you know, enabling a ridiculous number of hate sites and, you know, being super duper free speech advocates that, you know, oh, no, we totally need to protect Nazis from getting, you know, booted off the net. I, I don't like that, but that has nothing to do with, you know, any implied disdain here. I just really don't like having to walk, wade through five pages of fluff to figure out like two sentences of what this technically does. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Cloudflare, mostly because they keep trying to act like they invented <laughs> all these concepts and that they're the only CDN and that, you know, oh, we stopped the biggest denial of service attacks ever. It's like, no, you didn't. They're trying to centralize the internet as well, or the web at least. Yes, that's the other thing. It's like we talked a bit about before. It's getting to the point that if you're not having your content served by Cloudflare, Google, Facebook, or Apple or somebody, then it, it, they're doing everything they can to squeeze you off the internet. <laughs> you know, Cloudflare wants to create this one network that's not the internet, that is the Cloudflare approved network. And only, you know, it's basically create your own walled garden, kind of like Facebook has become where, you know, you don't even get links off of Facebook. The content just gets slurped into Facebook. We've also just seen them break everything many times. Well, that's the thing. If you've got every website in the world, every important one behind Cloudflare and Cloudflare goes down, then half the bloody internet goes down. It's especially when it goes down because somebody at Cloudflare thought it'd be good to make a rule that blocks IP packets that are more than 64 kilobytes when that's the limit. And so it just made all the routers fall over because that's an invalid rule. I think the biggest thing that that points to is not necessarily a failing of Cloudflare's, but um, you know, kind of a failing in the rest of the industry that nobody else seems to be interested in doing that same work and providing a solid competitor. I mean, there are, of course, other content distribution networks, 
But um, like, I don't know of anything shady that Cloudflare did to make everybody go with Cloudflare. It just kind of seems to be where everybody is headed. Well, they gave a bunch of it away for free for now uh, until they get the market share and then the, the price will suddenly change. You know, once it's like you, you're using Cloudflare or you're not going to survive on the internet, then I'm sure that will change. They can't keep giving everything away for free for, for very long. So you're saying Cloudflare is the 1980s Japanese television of content delivery networks. I was thinking more like the Walmart where they come in and destroy all the small businesses in a town <laughs> mm. and then the prices go up. Yeah, or Amazon that's destroying even Walmart these days to some extent. That's how Japanese industry destroyed the American television market. That's why RCA TVs aren't a thing anymore, because they were actually selling below cost to corral the market and then be able to drive the cost back up again. Welcome to capitalism. A bit of a controversial one then. WordPress recently forcibly updated people's Loginizer plugin to fix a very, very serious SQL injection bug that is just it was a horrendous bug. This was a very popular WordPress plugin. I didn't know that WordPress even had this ability to forcibly update people's plugins on self-hosted WordPress sites, but apparently they do. You can understand why they did it, but it makes me a bit uncomfortable to think that they can do it. Yeah, I can understand why people would be leery of that, especially, you know, next one of the times this happens is the plugin's going to, you know, have changed something or or done something that somebody doesn't want it to doesn't want the upgrade on purpose but you know at the same time wordpress also has to do something to to fix its image of just the reason every website gets hacked i think my biggest concern with uh it happening would be how often i've seen wordpress upgrades go sideways really i've found that wordpress as long as you don't mess with the css and stuff the automatic updates of wordpress seem to be fine and the plugin automatic updates seem to be working fine now my problem is mostly that the sites I'm dealing with are more like the WordPress multi-user, WordPress, the multi-site thing, like giant things for, for media companies and stuff where right. there's tens of thousands of posts and it's actually five different websites in one database and all really complicated setups rather than the 15 posts that uh, our website has. <laughs> I haven't really had any trouble even with, uh, you know, multi-site WordPress installs. I've, I've managed several of those as well. The problem that I always have with WordPress sites, you end up with a site owner or creator who goes looking at like every WordPress plugin known to man and goes, I like this one and that one and the other one, and maybe I'll want this one. And, you know, by the time you come to look at this site, there's 50 different freaking plugins installed and they don't even know which ones they're actually using versus they've just installed and activated. And it's just kind of sitting there. Then something goes sideways. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a mess trying to unsort that, but I, I've never really seen like a simple WordPress install, including multi-site, you know, with like well-designed themes and a few well-designed plugins. I, I haven't really seen issues with that. Yeah. Uh, I think you have to you hit on the point there is that it's, it's more, the problems we've run into is, yeah, the, the big news website has got like 60 plugins and they, some genius over there decides to install this other plugin that's going to help them track uh, the URLs people ended at, at that were actually a 404 and where were they actually trying to go. And, try to, and it turns out it logs this into the database and then there's like 500 million rows in that table. And then every time it wants to walk them all the time instead of just 
appending and then the whole website falls over. <laughs> or plugins that are just littered with PHP eval and, you know, similar wonderful yes. best practices. All kinds of stuff. It's so like, you know, you get the support email. Our site's not working properly anymore. It's like, did you install a plugin yesterday? And like, yeah, how'd you know? Where do you stand on forced upgrades then? Uh, so here's where I stand on quote forced unquote upgrades. I mean, your policy needs to be clear as to how upgrades work and how they're initiated and, you know, if they're opt-in or opt-out and yada, yada, yada. But, I mean, this is 2020, man. If you're installing something that's going to touch the internet, you really need to have automatic security upgrades on it. If you aren't the developer who will be writing the patches to fix it to begin with, you really shouldn't just be living in this mindset of like, oh, I have code and this code is good and it will continue to be good and I'll deal with it if and when I need to. I, that just doesn't work with the modern attack landscape. The plugin in question had horrible security implications, and it's hard to imagine how even a botched update, which we didn't have, but even if the update was botched, how botched would it have to be to be worse than the problem? Even if it broke your whole site, at least it meant they couldn't compromise it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog the unified monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments. Quickly analyze the performance of your Linux servers in real time with customizable dashboards and troubleshoot Linux issues in seconds with a unified view of your metrics, traces, and logs all in one place. With integrations for over 400 technologies, you can even use Datadog to monitor key Linux source metrics alongside data from the rest of your stack to get full visibility into the health and performance of your entire infrastructure. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash 25admins. Start your trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash 25admins. Let's do a bit of free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, you can do so via email show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so on Patreon. The details for that are at 2.5admins.com. And thank you everyone who is supporting us. It's really appreciated. And remember, if you support us for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. We're inching towards our goal of $500 a month. Once we get there, we'll go weekly with the show. So do check that out. So Josh writes to us, I have several VMs and containers running on my home lab, including a Plex server. Ever since I've been working from home, I've constantly hit my one terabyte bandwidth limit and have been charged the overage fee. I need a way to set up a network monitoring tool that I can enable at the gateway level, something that I can just change in my DHCP settings, a proxy of sorts. I want to know how much bandwidth each of 30 devices, including VMs, on my network are using. Being able to see that traffic would be a plus, but not necessary for my use case. So you probably don't want to use a proxy just because that will only capture the HTTP traffic uh, and is more complicated. Um, but like you said, at a gateway level, if if your gateway machine is where you're going to be able to run this, then it should be relatively straightforward to count the traffic. There are lots of different ways to do this. It depends how you want to do it. I've done it a couple of different ways. Uh, it can be as simple as using count rules in the firewall and just saying, you know, incoming traffic from this IP gets counted by this rule and, and managing it, but that's probably not the level of solution you were looking for. Uh, I think, Jim, you had an idea for something, didn't you? 
Yeah, the the package that's going to be uh, it's called NTOP NG for next generation. Um, that's the uh, if you ever use a PFSense router, that's actually the the traffic management interface that you see in PFSense. They just adopted NTOP NG, but you don't actually have to install PFSense to get it. Uh, the it's a completely separate package, and like on Ubuntu, apt install NTOP NG, and poof, you've got web based you know traffic monitoring. Like it's done. At that point, the only thing you need is you know for the traffic actually to be routed through that machine to begin with, which presumably is the case. If not, then you could just set that up. I, I know he said that he's using VMs already. If he's not already using that machine or a VM or a you know real Linux or BSD box as his router, then he could just set up an NTOP NG VM and you know enable gatewaying through that. And then, like you mentioned with his DHCP, just have his DHCP assign that box as the gateway address rather than the actual WAN router and done. Exactly. Once you've got NTOP NG installed, um, you can bre- you can go into it with your web browser and authenticate, and uh, you can see lots of different views of your traffic. They have a concept called flows that's uh, that's really useful for monitoring what's going on, either in real time or you know from kind of a historical perspective. So, like if you've got you know one particular culprit amongst your VMs that's eating all your your bandwidth, you'll discover that very quickly using NTOP NG. Now, beyond that, if you want to start actually shaping your traffic to you know maybe alleviate the problem a little bit, um, there's a really great package called Firehole that's quite easy to install and use and set up rule sets to, uh, usually I use it more for, you know, priority stuff to make sure I've got nice low latency on my SSH sessions and whatever. But, um, it, it might also come in handy for, um, limiting aggregate bandwidth consumption. Yeah. Uh, on BSD, you can use something like dummy net to create rules that, uh, for either prioritizing or saying this host going to this service can't use more than this many megabits a second or whatever to control the traffic. Firehole, by the way, does not look like Firehole. It's Fire H-O-L is the main project. And that one is actually um, the parent project. Firehole is is it's really more of an IP tables management kind of a deal. But there's a portion of the project called Fire QoS, which can also be installed individually. That does what I was talking about with the traffic shaping. I use Fire QoS on my own homebrew Ubuntu router in my house. Yeah. And like uh, Jim was saying with the NTOP stuff, It'll break down the traffic by which host did it, but also even just a service. So you can see most of it is traffic going to Netflix or it's mostly traffic that's not HTTP and something else is going on. Uh, And you can use that to track down what's doing what. You can also track it by destination IP or port or what have you. Uh, Basically, just about any way you can think of that you might want to look at your overall traffic, you, you can do it. Am I a dinosaur for using VNstat then? You're not a dinosaur, but I don't know that you have exactly the same wants and use case that he does. Um, if you want to look at things in more of a real-time basis, like from the command line and just kind of see what's going on right now, VNstat's a great tool. For that, I also like Iftop. I use Iftop a lot also. And uh, there's another one called NetHogs. If you want to know um, what your traffic looks like on the machine that you're on by process rather than, uh, you know, by remote port or what have you, NetHogs is a good answer for that. You can see, uh, you know, how much traffic, uh, how much network traffic, you know, Chrome is using versus Firefox or Samba or whatever else you've got, you know, running by the actual process ID that way, which can come in handy. Sean writes to us, what open source software would you recommend to perform and manage tape backups, LTO 5 and 6, on Windows and Linux servers? That is all you, Alan. The only one that I've ever done anything like that with was Bacula. 
And so you basically set up one machine as the director uh, and it has a database that keeps the index of, you know, we'll be able to tell you which tape you need to go get in order to restore a certain thing or whatever. Uh, and then there's the agent that goes on all the machines that you want to back up. The agent for Windows has support for volume shadow copy and all the stuff to even, you know, back up Microsoft SQL databases and exchange mail stores while they're running, that kind of thing. And obviously there's clients for Linux and Mac and BSD and so on. Uh, and then the, I forget what it's called, not the file daemon, the storage daemon, I think, uh, will go out and fetch backups from all of those. And it manages doing, you know, full backups, differential backups, incremental backups. It even has synthetic backups, which basically takes a full and some of your uh, differentials or incrementals and makes a new virtual full out of it uh, so that you don't have to do you know, the big slurp, especially if you're pulling over slower links rather than, you know, all over the LAN or whatever. And it has great support for lots of different tape libraries. Uh, so yeah, my recommendation, uh, recommendation is Bacula. This sounds like golden age science fiction, you know, where you get on your spaceship with the great big fins and, you know, powered by <laughs> tape loaded computers, you travel to the stars. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were supposed to be the old man, Jim. How come you don't know about this? I know about it. I know enough about it to have avoided tapes for like 30 freaking years now. That's why I immediately passed that one off to Alan. I'm like, tapes? Nope. <laughs> the last tapes I personally managed was the the SCSI tape deck on my 486, <laughs> which could back up like 400 megabytes on a giant cassette tape that had like a metal plate in the bottom. Uh, and then when I worked at the power plant, it was uh, my job a couple of times to like, pull one tape out of the tape deck and label it and put it in the box and put it in the fresh tape. And then it would walk its way down to the bottom of the, the tape robot. You know, it was fun to watch the tape robot when that was never a thing I had never seen before. But the majority of my professional interaction with tape drives over the last at least 20 years has been telling people, no, your tape backups are not any good. This is not surprising. And then removing the tape drive, you know, from their plan and installing something better yeah is it the same technology essentially as the old commodore 64 and amstrads and stuff well i mean those literally just used phillips cassette tapes yeah yeah but that's what i mean is it that same magnetic tape technology that we're talking about here yeah it really is it's just you know they've got it much denser and better now where you can get like 40 terabytes on a tape you know of course the tapes are always like assuming that our hardware compression will get 2.0 to yeah. 1 compression which it never does no 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 it'll totally compress the crap out of your mpegs and avis and uh, zip files man they'll they'll be tiny or your already compressed set of sn streams or whatever yeah <laughs> fair enough James writes to us, I run a home server on Ubuntu. It doubles as an occasional desktop PC. My wife accidentally shut it down instead of logging out the other day. How can I prevent GDM and non-sudo users from powering off or rebooting the machine? There are lots of answers to this online, but sadly, all before the switch to login D. There's only one problem user in this case. So honestly, I'm going to advise James the same thing. I advise a lot of clients in similar circumstances. Uh, user training is probably going to be more effective than a technological solution here. Yeah. Like, I don't know about Ubuntu in the first place. And then once you throw login D into the mix, even less clue. On BSD, you have to be part of the operators group to be able to do a shutdown or reboot as non-root. But if you aren't part of the operators group, you also won't be able to do things like mount USB sticks. Uh, so there's not really a, a more granular solution to say, you know, you can do everything except for turn the machine off. Well, since the switch to system day, 
You can literally open a terminal and type reboot and it will reboot. No sudo required just as a regular user. So yeah, I think Jim's right on this one. The only solution is user training. I don't doubt there are ways to, you know, gin something together to try to make it more difficult for that to happen. It just doesn't sound worthwhile in this case. You know, if his problem was any of 30 people might walk by and do this thing, then, you know, okay, let's look for a technological solution. But, you know, when it's just your wife accidentally shut the computer down one time, I mean, honey, don't, don't do that. And problem solved. Yeah. Now I'm picturing all kinds of crazy solutions like a cron tab on another machine just doing the um, <laughs> magic pixie wake up packet like every minute. <laughs> so if it ever gets turned off, it just turns on again. Or like a watchdog looking looking for like reboot processes and just trying to kill them before they can do anything. Yeah. But, but like I'm sure there's some way with some policy system in system D to take that capability away from that one user or whatever. But yeah, that sounds like a lot of work and something that might not persist properly through an OS upgrade and then... You know, we'll bite you again later. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code admins to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with 50% off with the code ADMINS. That's automation.link and the code ADMINS. Okay, an anonymous person writes to us, I prefer to turn on auto-updates where I can, but I had an issue on my home server where the DKMS module on ZFS on Linux wouldn't rebuild every time I had a kernel upgrade, which would cause my ZFS pool not to mount on restart, creating issues for accessing files on the server until I had the spare time to get to it and rebuild it. Do you have a recommendation to ensure DKMS modules are automatically rebuilt when there's a kernel update? I wish I did, but the the answer here really is that DKMS already is supposed to do that. So, you know, something broke in that process. And that, unfortunately, is a thing that happens, in my experience, pretty frequently with DKMS, whether it's ZFS-related or not. Um, I had to give up on my wife having an 802.11ac Wi-Fi adapter in her workstation because she suddenly decided that it should be somewhere where there was no wired network jack and I had to provide Wi-Fi. And um, I gave her a Realtek device, but it needed out of tree drivers that had to be updated with DKMS. And, you know, after like the third time she reboots and it no longer works, I'm like, screw this. And I put an old 802.11n adapter uh, that used the AT10K driver in to avoid that problem. You decided to go cutting edge like Alan does. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, I mean, the issue is just that DKMS is not 100% reliable. So the solution is switch to Ubuntu then? That would certainly be a solution since Ubuntu does not use DKMS with its ZFS, or you could go completely crazy pants and, uh, you know, join Alan in FreeBSD land where there would also be no DKMS layer to worry about. You could also, you know, pin your kernel version and only upgrade kernel versions manually. But basically, no, I, I can't give you some way to make DKMS always work without somebody jogging its elbow. It doesn't. I'm wondering in this case, is it that it was triggered properly but failed to rebuild? Or was it literally just DKMS never ran and so never tried to build the newer ZFS? I mean, I I can't speak for the OP, obviously. I haven't seen logs, Mm -hmm. but I have seen quite a few ZFS and non-ZFS related DKMS failures. And a lot of the time, for whatever reason, it just does not work. It, It does typically fire off, 
But like with ZFS specifically, back in the old days, um, I frequently would just have to completely uninstall the ZFS DKMS, you know, package and then reinstall it and then everything would work right. But trying to just, even trying to, you know, from the command line, manually force a DKMS build would not work. I would have to remove and reinstall that package. Interesting. Previously in FreeBSD, we've never really had this issue, but more lately, uh, specifically our graphics drivers are sensitive to even the minor version of FreeBSD. So going from 12.1 to 12.2, the graphics drivers, uh, our package repos where we build the binary packages are built by the oldest supported version of that uh, major release. So we build packages for 12.1 and 12.2 on a 12.1 machine. So we build one set of packages and it works on both. And that works for everything except for about five kernel module-y things like VirtualBox and the graphics drivers. Why do you need graphics drivers on FreeBSD? Because we have full support for the brand newest Intel graphics drivers. And you need them to run a nice desktop on FreeBSD. No one runs a FreeBSD desktop. Not even you do. Yes, I do. There's one right here. Well, next to your Windows box that you're talking to us on. There's one right here, right next to the computer I use. (laughs) (laughs) There's one Windows computer in my house and eight FreeBSD machines. Yeah, and which one are you using, Alan? (laughs) (laughs) I'm recording the podcast on the Windows machine, but I do my day job mostly on the FreeBSD machine. And this one is the one I do when I travel. Uh, And then the third FreeBSD desktop machine is the one that's on my exercise bike. And it lets me wash stuff off Plex while I exercise. Oh, so you definitely need a graphics driver for that then? Yes. Fair enough. And it's the Intel graphics driver and it works fine. But anyway, uh, so there's been some wondering about doing something, you know, DKMS-ish for FreeBSD for that small set of things where the kernel module needs to match your kernel very closely. And it especially is a problem if you're running the development branch of FreeBSD where, you know, the packages are built on some snapshot that's, you know, plus or minus a week from where you are. And, uh, means that there's a, a high probability the package isn't going to work for you. Well, maybe once you've built it, we can port it to Linux and uh, not have to deal with the KMS anymore. <laughs> All right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, you can send your questions for Jim and Alan to show at 2.5admins.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you in two weeks.